0: book of Jude. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we ask you to take the lessons that surface in these verses and help us, Lord, to adequately understand them. I pray that these truths would become tools whereby we can intimately know you and how you think, what you want what you love and what would even displease you so that we might stay away from it. Help us, Lord, to learn from the negative examples in the Scripture, as well as the positive examples. And by your grace, Lord, may we live in a way that pleases you in the last days in which we live. Lord, I thank you for those whom you have brought tonight into this place, those who hunger and thirst after the truth that you have revealed. And I pray, Father, that you would reward them with the knowledge of God. For you said if we cry out for it and we yearn after discernment and understanding, that then we would find the knowledge of God. And I pray, Father, we would then take what we know and with wisdom apply it to our hearts, to our lives, In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a while since we've gotten back into Jude. As you know, we're going through this book slowly. Thursday night is an in-depth study. In-depth means in-depth. We take each verse, put it under the microscope, and dissect it. And then we each week will connect it to the verses that precede it and the verses that come after it. Now, as you know, Jude is a hard-hitting letter. James Moffat said it's a cross, a fiery cross that was meant to rouse the church into action. And it's primarily a trumpet call to defend the faith. Again, the verse most of us know from this book is found in verse 3. Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, It was once for all delivered to the saints. The book of Jude tells us a lot about church history. It tells us what happens whenever there is revival. Whenever there's a work of God, there is a reaction in hell. When God works upon this earth and God moves from his heavenly throne to stir up the hearts of men and women in revival, hell doesn't take it lightly. They will be quick to move in. And the way they do it, is often, as we see in this book, through heresy. Now, just a little bit of refreshment. A little bit of background. Almost every letter that you come across in the New Testament is written with what we would call occasional theology. That is, an occasion has surfaced. Something has happened that would cause a writer to get this burden in his heart, this vision to write. He's compelled to do something about it. Like... What happened in the church of Corinth? There was division. There was incest. There was fighting. There was bickering. There was division over spiritual gifts. And all of these issues surfaced to cause the Apostle Paul to write two hard-hitting letters that set out some doctrinal principles for the church to gather together. Jude was written because an occasion had surfaced. As we already read about and mentioned so often, Jude did not want to write a heavy-fisted letter. He wanted to encourage people. It's always fun to encourage and have a light, slap-on-the-back type of a message. Get everybody laughing, ho-hum, encourage, ready to go. But Jude couldn't do that because heresy had entered the congregations. And we gave you in the past the definition of heresy. A heresy is defined as an opinion that is held in contradiction to commonly believed doctrine that tends toward dividing the body of Christ. The heresy that was invading the early church came in two forms. And again, this is by way of review. We've already covered this, but to review, because it's easy to forget, the two things that surfaced, the first one was called antinomianism, which simply means there was a group of people who were against Any moral restraint. They said something like this. Hey man, I'm under grace. I'm not under any law. Therefore, because I'm not under any law, I can live however I please and you have no right to call me into account. Or to quote any scriptures to me or tell me that I'm not living as God would want me to live because we're not supposed to judge each other. Because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And so people were living together sexually in the name of love. People were cheating each other, defrauding each other. But excusing their flesh because this movement of antinomianism against the law, against the restraint of moral law was surfacing. The second heresy coupled with that was called Gnosticism, something we've covered in depth both on Thursday night and Sunday morning, now that we're covering First John. The Gnostics felt they were superior to everybody else. They were spiritual elitists. They had a special kind of knowledge that no one else had. They looked down their nose at at the average Joe Christian. As these things came into the ears and the mind of Jude, his heart was provoked. He couldn't just sit back and go, Hey guys, how's it going? Love you. Like to be with you. He said, I wanted to write a letter of encouragement. But I was compelled to exhort you that you would contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Put up a good fight for the faith. Defend the faith. And it's always necessary in every generation for godly men and women to rise up and to take the position of this is right, this is truth, at the risk of being unpopular, at the risk of being called narrow minded to say, this is truth, that is error, and I won't even be afraid to name people's names. I notice every time I name any name of a group or any name of an individual, I get some kind of a mark like, that's not loving. My response is, you bet. It's probably the most loving thing you can do. I love my sheep enough to warn them whenever poison is around. In verse 11, he says, woe to them. The question is, woe to who? The woe is directed to those people who claim to have a relationship with God, but they have either fallen away from it or they never knew God at all. The Gnostics and the Antinomians. In verses 5 through 11, um, Jude gives some examples of apostasy, of people who have fallen away doctrinally people who are not walking right with God and not believing truth about God and therefore they are practicing error because they believe things that are filled with error. He gives three examples of groups who have strayed away from God. The first being the nation of Israel, no less. Then angels who left their first estate, those who fell. And then uh, the third one is the, the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he gives three examples in verse 9. Michael the archangel, contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. In one verse, Jude reaches back into history and pulls up three men, three individuals, who fell away in different respects, who left their position of serving God three different ways. First of all, Cain, and then Balaam, and then Korah. Cain was a tiller of the ground, a farmer, the first farmer that we know about. Balaam was a prophet who did it for profit, did it for wrong motivations. And then Korah was a prince of the people, a member of the family of Levi, a Kohathite. That is, he was serving in the tabernacle around the other Levites who were priests. One of the points I think that Jude is making is he moves from groups of people movements that have apostatized to individuals is that what can happen to a group, be it a culture or a denomination, can happen to a person. The Scripture says, Take heed lest you fall. If a brother is overtaken with a fault, you who are spiritual restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Listen, none of us can ever say, I'm too spiritual for any of that. That would never happen to me. I would never do anything less than a wholehearted following of God. We have to take heed lest we fall. Notice also, before we pick each one apart, that there is a progression in the text. Look at the verbs again. They have gone, they have run, they have perished. It begins by going, it graduates into running, it ends up in perishing. Any movement away from Jesus Christ is an accelerating downhill movement. You can't sort of backslide. I've noticed that when people start falling away from that position of walking with Christ, there's an accelerated movement that often happens when a few steps are taken. What can happen with groups, Jude says, has also happened with individuals. Think of the scripture in the book of Proverbs that says, "There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death." And that's Jude's warning here. He begins verse 11 by saying, "Woe!" Now, whenever there's a woe, it's not a good sign. Put it that way. This is not a California surf exclamation. It's not like, "Whoa, dude!" This is like woe, like a prophet would denounce someone in judgment. And often you read in the prophets, where the prophets would they speak against a nation or against a false prophet, use the prophetic denunciation woe. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos. Many of their prophecies were filled with such exclamations. Isaiah said, woe to the wicked, disaster is upon them. You never find woe given in good light. Jesus said to the cities around the Sea of Galilee, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida, for if the works that were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he prophesied their destruction. To the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs that people walk over without noticing. Concerning Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, Woe to him, it would be better that he had been never born. So it's always an exclamation of judgment. Again, that's not what Jude wanted to write. I'm sure that by this time the people reading this letter are just glued to their seats going, golly, Jude is being rough you think that's rough, just take a peek ahead and look at verse 12. Concerning these heretics, they are spots in your love feasts. For while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." you can't crack a smile after a verse like that. I mean, it's just boom. It's like an atom bomb has been dropped. But though he wanted to be encouraging, again, he felt compelled by the Spirit of God to write this letter. Now, there's a point I want to make. Pulpits, any place where there is biblical instruction, is meant for the building up of the body of Christ To encourage, to lift up, to strengthen the feeble knees. But also, it's a place to confront. For Paul the Apostle said, When I was with you in Ephesus for three years, I did not cease to teach you and to warn you. Literally, to confront you. And pulpits are meant both to encourage, to build up, to add to the faith, and also part of that building up process is to confront. It's a source of warning. Both grace and judgment should come out of the same place. And it just kind of depends on what position you're in. You know, it's been said that a preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. And I notice as I read the Gospels that Jesus did a good job of that. So did Paul. When he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul the Apostle said, To one we are the aroma of death and to death. And to the other, we are the aroma of life to life. When Simeon took Jesus in the temple and prophesied over him, he looked to Mary and Joseph and he said, This child will be a sign for the rising, the falling and the rising of many in Israel. There will be a falling, but there will also be a rising which shall be spoken against. And I noticed that often Jesus would offend people like the rulers. There came a time when, after Jesus denounced the scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, Master, you just offended them. In John's Gospel, Jesus offended entire crowds of people. So much so that many of them got up in the middle of his message and headed for the back door of course, there wasn't a back door on the shores of Galilee, but if there would have been one, they would have gone for it. And that's when Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Are you going to go also? They said, Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. I often am afraid that some messages that I give can be offensive. In fact, I'll often run it by my wife and say, Honey, how does this sound? I don't, I don't want to be overt. I'm not trying to offend anybody. If it offends people, that's just the way it is. And the gospel cuts, fine, but how, how does it sound? Or after a message, I'll say, How did it sound? And I've had a, a lot of people even come and say, oh, I was offended at that. And a good friend of mine, Gino Gerasi, who was on staff. He one time said, Skip, it's amazing that you haven't offended more people. The group this size. The truth is a balm of encouragement to another. And it is a prickly, cutting of the heart kind of a thing to another person. It just depends who they are. If you're right with God, you love the truth. If you're not right with God, you don't like it. You don't want to hear it. And so it's a place of encouragement and a place of warning. Well, first of all, let's look at that first phrase in verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Why does he bring up Cain as his first individual example? Simply because Cain in the scripture is the first individual who ever departed from serving God. His story is found back in Genesis chapter 4. It says he went away from the presence of the Lord. That's his legacy. He's a man who had all of the same kind of opportunities his brother Abel had. He had some kind of a relationship with God at first albeit religious and very surfacy. But in the end, he went away from the presence of the Lord. He never changed as God confronted him. If you would turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 4, we'll read a little bit about him. And let's see what the scripture means when it says they've gone the way of Cain. A couple words about Cain. He was very religious but he was a natural man. What I mean by that is that he was not a righteous man. He was a person who never changed inside. He only went through outward motions. And the Bible tells us the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. He can't even understand them. Cain was like that. He believed in God. He believed in religion, but as long as it was his own way. Now we read about it in The fourth chapter, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. She said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, and he did not respect Cain and his offering, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Modern translation, he was bummed out. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you bummed out? Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel his brother and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will be happened that anyone who finds me will kill me. Cain and Abel were two totally different fellows. More than just temperament. One was righteous, one was religious. Both of them were taught something by their parents. Abel learned it, Cain did not. Their parents taught them that there's only one way that God will accept approach to God in covering their sin, and that is the blood of an innocent victim. Blood atonement. Let's go back to chapter 3 so we get some context here. Of course, we all know that chapter 3 is the story of the fall of man. Verse 6 So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, "Where are you?" So he said, "Well, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself." And he said, "Who told you that you were naked?" Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now look over at another verse. In verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and he clothed them. Now the only way you're going to get a tunic of a skin is to slay an animal, shed its blood, kill it, dry the skins and make clothes for them. They took something that was growing, leaves, put it around them. God put skins of animals around them. And here you have, in the beginning form, a shadow of the cross already falling on the creation of man. God rejects their covering of leaves, instead takes an innocent animal, has it killed, and he covers Adam and Eve which shows us a few things. Number one, man needs an adequate covering for his sins. Number two, God will not accept your own works to cover your sin. And finally, number three, the only way they can be covered is through the death of an innocent victim. It's a pre-figure, a pre-shadow of the cross. Just like the Passover lamb that was slain when they went out of Egypt. One lamb for a family. Now, it says that God had respect for Abel's offering, but not for Cain. There have been a lot of uh, opinions given as to why God accepted Abel's, but not Cain's. And there are a couple reasons, actually. But the prominent one, and the idea that Jude is getting to, is that Cain set aside the approach to God based upon blood. And because he was a tiller of the ground, by his own good works, he brought something that he tilled, that he prepared, and he brought it as a sacrifice unto the Lord. There was a setting aside of approaching God through blood, the shedding of blood. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Anytime an individual or a group sets aside coming to God by the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ, they have gone in the way of Cain. Anytime a church, an organization, or a denomination starts scribbling out of their hymn book all of the hymns that speak about the blood and the atonement of Jesus Christ, it's a group that is going the way of Cain. Anytime an individual or a group tries to approach God by his own works and says, I'm saved by my own goodness and hard work, not by the grace, by the shedding of Jesus' blood, they're going the way of Cain. Now let me name a few groups. The Jehovah Witnesses tell us that Jesus Christ's death on the cross provided a way by which man can work for his own salvation. Provided a way by which a man can work for his own salvation, not provided a way that you can have eternal life by that blood, but so you can work your way to God. The Mormons teach that you also work your way to God. Mary Baker Eddy, in her book, Science and Health, which is the textbook for Christian science, so-called, it's neither Christian nor science, says that the blood of Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, was no more efficacious to save a person from sins than while it was coursing through his veins when he was walking around the streets of Galilee or Jerusalem. It does not cleanse a man from all sin. Of course, again, the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The way of Cain is the broad way. Every now and then, groups will come along and say things like, you fuzzy fundamentalists, you narrow-minded bigots, you who are so small in your thinking, saying that the Death and the blood of Jesus Christ is the only way by which a man can get to heaven. Hey, let's be tolerant. Let's embrace everyone's efforts. Actually, I get called narrow-minded quite often. And I take it as a compliment. When they say you're narrow-minded, I say, let me go you a step further. I'm closed-minded completely. Since I met Jesus Christ, he shut my mind to any other option. Because he said, I, in contradistinction to all others, am the only way, truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow-minded. But Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many enter therein. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. So am I narrow? Yeah. Am I closed minded You betcha. The way of Cain is the way that broadens the path, that says, hey, heaven has a lot of different paths, whether well, it's an eight-lane highway, you've got New Age, and you've got Fundamentalists, and you've got this brand, and Hindus, and we're all going to God somehow. That's the way of Cain. It broadens out the path, and allows you to get to heaven by some other means than blood atonement. Also, Cain was a murderer. He was mastered by hatred. And he persecuted his brother who was righteous. And the way of Cain, following, like Cain in the Bible, is that system or that thinking by which not only are you trying to work your way to God, but anyone who preaches the truth, you're intimidated by it. And you seek to persecute that person. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and you will be hated by all nations and all men for my name's sake. And it happened. It was true. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, they'll beat you. Religious people, he said, they'll beat you in their synagogues. Now in the ancient times, in the Jewish synagogues, there was a special room where cases were heard. Judicial cases were brought. They were brought to the rabbis who acted as the judges. If you were found guilty of breaking rabbinic law or tradition, you were flogged. And while you were being flogged, one person would read the sentence, one person would count the flogging, and other people would sing songs. Jesus said, they'll beat you even in the synagogues. One of the greatest persecutors, historically, against true Christianity has been the religious sections. It's been organized religion has been guilty of some of the greatest persecutions against God's children throughout history. In the New Testament, we read about Paul going to Ephesus. And they were worshippers of that great cult, the goddess of Diana. And for two hours, they worked themselves into the frenzy and they said, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, they chanted this nonsense. And in religious furor, they kicked people out of their city, persecuting them, beating them, and chasing them throughout Asia. Paul himself was a religious persecutor. He went up to Damascus to get people who called on the name of the Lord, all in the name of religion, to silence those Christians. Jesus was harassed principally by religious people, scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus would heal on the Sabbath day. And they would set up spies. Look at that. He healed somebody on the Sabbath day. Let's get him. Now think about how narrow-minded that is. If I was there, I would say, wait a minute. When was the last time you healed anybody on the Sabbath day or any other day? But they were so bigoted in their narrow religion by works, they couldn't tolerate anything that was real or authentic. Where Jesus would say to a person, your sins are forgiven. (gasps) How can anybody forgive sins but God? See, they were so legalistic. And they held on to the Mosaic law with such bigotry and such conviction that they couldn't even stand the authentic thing. We read the book of Revelation and we find that the last great persecution against God's children in the great tribulation period, those who are saved during the tribulation period, will be by an organized religious system known as Babylon the Great, whom God calls the great whore, the religious whore, the religious harlot, who's organized itself to persecute God's children. Now why is it, why is it that religion harasses God's people? Simply because, it's the same thinking as Cain, when you have a righteousness by works that says, man, I'm working hard, I'm doing the best that I can to get to God. And somebody comes along and says, you don't have to do that. Moreover, all of the works that you try to do to get toward God, to get to heaven, won't work. God won't receive them, and all of your works are like filthy rags, as the Bible says. That offends people. Especially when you say no. You have to admit that you're a sinner. You can't get to God on your own. And you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Hey, wait a minute. I've been working hard at this system. This is the best I can do. Well, your best isn't good enough. But the best that God gave through Jesus Christ is good enough. So why don't you just quit trying to do it on your own. Believe in Him and confess your sins and take Him as your Savior. And you'll make it. Oh, but those who embrace the way of Cain can't handle that kind of thinking. And church history records the deeds done by organized religion throughout history, in the synagogues, during the Great Reformation by the Roman Church and others throughout history. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised when churches on the East Coast and in other parts of the country that we have seen become assaulted in their services by the homosexuals who march in the middle of the service throwing condoms around. The church has always been persecuted by the children of Cain, by those who will not accept that salvation comes by admitting, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and who would denounce any kind of a lifestyle that's not biblical. Let's broaden the path out. It's the way of Cain. Next on our list in that verse, verse 11, is the error of Balaam for prophet. The error of Balaam. First of all, he describes them like Cain. Second of all, he says they are like Balaam. Now uh, Scripture speaks in the New Testament of the way of Balaam in Second Peter, the error of Balaam in Jude, the verse we are reading, and the doctrine of Balaam in the book of Revelation. But listen to this, Second Peter chapter two, they have left the straight way, they have wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's mouth and restrained the prophet's madness. I gotta tell you, I gotta confess. Balaam is a complete enigma to me. I don't understand him. Because he is one who practices divination, sorcery. And at the same time, as I read his prophecies in the book of Numbers, chapters 22, 23, 24, and 25, some of the most beautiful and accurate descriptions of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, are presented there. Behold, a star shall come out of Jacob, and the scepter shall arise out of Israel. He said that. He's an interesting fellow. The lesson about this guy is that we ought to listen when God warns us. He didn't. Here's the story. When the children of Israel were almost done with their wilderness wandering for 40 years, they camped out in the plains of Moab. There was a king named Balak, who was the king over the people of that time, and he saw that the children of Israel had defeated Og and the Amorites, the Ammonites, and had come into this land of Moab, and he thought, man, we're history, we're doomed. But I heard that there is a prophet up by the Euphrates River named Balaam. If we let Balaam come over here and curse these people, at least their strength will be diminished and we'll be able to defeat them because Balaam had quite a reputation that whoever he blesses will get blessed, whoever he curses will get cursed. So Balak sends a big fat honorarium check along with some dignitaries and they find Balaam up by the Euphrates River and he said, Listen, we got a message from Balak and... He wants you to know that this huge number of people have come out of Egypt. They've been wandering out in the desert and now they're camped at our doorstep. He wants you to come and curse them. Balaam says, tell you what, spend the night. Let me talk it over with God and I'll tell you what he says in the morning. That night he talks it over with God. And God says, don't you dare go with them. And don't you curse these people because I've blessed them. Next morning he says, Sorry to spoil your party, fellas, but God told me I can't go with you guys, so adios. They go all the way back to Moab, tell Balak. Balak sends a bigger check with more important people. He won't give up. And they said, Balaam, come and curse these people. Balaam says, look, you go tell Balak that he was. To, if, if he were to give me his house filled with gold and silver, couldn't do it. God told me i to. do it. But tell you what, spend the night, let me pray about it, Let me talk it over with God again. You see, he should have just said, Look, God said no, that's it. But he didn't. That night God said, Okay, tell you what. This time go with them. But only speak what I tell you to speak. Don't curse them. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to reverse what Balak wants and bless these people. So the next morning he gets saddles his donkey and he goes with them. But something apparently has happened within his heart. And he's going with them and thinking in his mind, you know, it's a pretty big check that they're offering me, and I, I could retire on this. So as he is going, on his donkey, there the angel of the Lord is standing in the pathway with a sword drawn in his hand. Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can see the angel of the Lord standing with his fiery sword. When the donkey sees it, the donkey had enough sense to turn away from the path and start running out in the field. And so Balaam starts beating that donkey. Come on, get back on the road. Finally gets back on the road. Donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing there again between the vineyards. And this time, because there's a wall on either side by the vineyards, he pushes Balaam against the wall and crushes his foot. And Balaam gets really mad and starts beating the donkey again. The donkey starts walking a little further and he sees the angel of the Lord standing there with his sword again in a very narrow place where the donkey can't turn around. At this, the donkey just lays on the ground underneath Balaam. Balaam gets off the donkey, starts beating it silly. And at that point, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey starts speaking in human language. And he says to Balaam, Hey man, why are you beating me? What have I done to you? Funny thing is that Balaam answers him back. He says, I'm beating you because you hurt my foot. The donkey said, hey, I've been a good donkey all these years. Ever since you bought me, I, you've ridden upon me. I've never done this before, have I? And he said, well, no. At that point, his eyes are open. He sees the angel of the Lord standing in front of him. said, so, let me tell you something, buddy. You have a perverse heart. You're going after this with the wrong motivation. And if it weren't for your faithful donkey, I was about to kill you and let him live. Now, you go with these people, but you don't say anything more than what I've told you to say. So obviously in his heart he had planned something, some way to curse the children of Israel. So he goes and he meets Balak and he says, Hey, I'm here, but believe me, I've learned a lesson that I can only say what God wants me to say. So Balak takes him to the heights of Moab and looks over the campment of Israel. He says, Okay, there they are, curse them. And he says, Blessed be Israel, whom God has blessed. And he uses this beautiful prophecy of blessing, which made Balak angry. Balak takes him to another vantage point and says, okay, maybe from this point you can see better, look at him, curse them. Again, he blesses them. Four times he blesses them, makes him so angry, Balak so angry, that he says, go home, get out of here. I wanted to bless you, but your God has kept you from this financial blessing. Then we read to chapter 25, which is of Numbers, which is a tragic chapter. Because apparently what Balaam does because he cannot curse the children of Israel, is tells Balak how God can judge the children of Israel. And he tells him to send the Moabite women down into the camp and to seduce them sexually. And while they're having the act of sexual intercourse, they would bring out their little gods, the gods of Baal. And that's how they would worship, through sexual intercourse, thereby bringing upon the children of Israel a reproach, and God would have to judge them. So he says, look, I can't curse them, but they can curse themselves. God can curse them because they sin. So send your beautiful, foxy women. That day, God judged the children of Israel, and 24,000 of the children of Israel, of the men of Israel, died that day because of sexual immorality. Balaam represents a man who took a gift of God And saw only dollar signs. It was only done for profit. He did not care about God's people at all. He cared only about lining his pocket. He was willing to sell out the people of God for a temporary reward. There's examples of this throughout the scripture. Paul spoke of a fellow by the name of Demas. He said, Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world. That's Balaam. Balaam forsook the Lord, having loved this present world. Now listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy. He spoke of the useless wranglings of men, with corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, and from such withdraw yourself. Balaam was ruled by greed, as many of the Gnostics were during that time. They would come in with these new doctrines, these new things that they would have to learn, And if you pay the right fee, we'll teach them to you. Secondly, Balaam represents one who will encourage others to sin. He tells Balak how to stumble the children of Israel by sending the Moabite women into the camp. So he turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. And God judges them. Third, how much time do we have? We have ten minutes, no problem. Third on our list in verse 11 is the rebellion of Korah. Korah is found in chapter 16 of the book of Numbers, and he also is a real interesting character. He's the cousin of Moses. He also is a Kohathite, which is a family of Levites who were meant to serve in the tabernacle into the things of the Lord. One day, Korah, Dothan, and Abiram get a group of 250 guys together and they approach Moses and they say, Moses, you are taking too much upon yourself. Why do you exalt yourself as the leader of Israel? For every one of the children of Israel is holy. All of us are the same. You have no right to be a self-appointed leader. Here you all are exalting yourself and calling all the shots, calling yourself the leader and Say that God speaks to you and God didn't speak to anybody else. Well, let me tell you something. We don't think God is even speaking to you. So they rebel. At that point, Moses falls on his face, cries out to the Lord, and he rebukes Korah. And he says, let me tell you guys something. You take too much upon yourself. You're Levites. God called you into the service of God. That's an important duty. Why do you want my job? He says, tell you what, let's meet tomorrow in front of the tabernacle. All right? And each one of us will take a censer and fill it with incense, which is what a priest would do, and all of us will stand there with that censer in front of the tabernacle. All right, fair enough. So you can picture the scene. There's Moses, there's Aaron. They're out in front of the tabernacle. Korah, Dothan, Abiram, and 250 others are all there with their little censers or incense. And that day, he speaks to God, and God says, Moses, quickly, Tell all of the children of Israel to remove themselves from the tents, the dwelling place of Korah, Dothan, and Abiram quickly. Get them out of their precincts. So he tells everybody, hey, don't you know get away from these folks. Then Moses stands up and he says, If these men who have come against me to usurp my authority, if they die a natural death, then I'm wrong. But if the earth opens up And swallows them up, then I'm right. No sooner did he say that when they heard a. The earth opened up, swallowed them, their tents, and they were history. They tried to usurp the authority, the authority that God had in Moses and Aaron. Just like the Gnostics and the heretics would come into the churches and say, Hey, listen, I know Paul the Apostle said this, and I know the Bible says this, but they're wrong. We're right. What makes them right over you? This is a new revelation. This is a new doctrine, a new teaching. Trying to usurp the authority that God has given in His Word. A.W. Tozer said, The essence of sin is rebellion against divine authority. And Paul wrote to Titus and said, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Now, there's a word I want you to look at in that verse, Jude chapter 11. It says, They perished in the rebellion of The word rebellion literally means against the word. The King James Version calls it the gain saying of Korah. That is, they rebelled against the word of the Lord spoken through Moses, the designated authority over the children of Israel. Cain ignored the word of God that was spoken to him by his parents, Adam and Eve, that you have to approach God by blood sacrifice. Balaam ignored the word of God when he said, don't curse the children of Israel and don't even go. And Korah ignored the word of the Lord spoken through designated leaders. Now the point that he makes over and over again in the book of Jude is that these examples were brought to us by the Lord, and we should look at them and take heart to them. Woe to them. That's a pronouncement of judgment. Anybody who will come along and say, forget the blood of Jesus Christ, forget Jesus being the only way, I want to broaden the path, work my way to God, beware of them. The end thereof is destruction. Beware of those people who try to take the work of God, the ministry of God, and use it to just line their own pockets and to become rich and not be changed by the grace of God themselves. And to ignore the warnings of God perpetually, and more than that, to entice other people to sin. And woe to those who usurp the word of God as the final authority. That's the rebellion of Korah that is spoken about. Again, the Bible says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let me close with a warning given by Alexander McLaren, who is a Scottish preacher from the last century, who said, Life is no level plane, but it is a steep incline on which there is no standing still. If you try to stand still, down you go. Either up or down must be the motion. If you are not more of a Christian than you were a year ago, then you are less. If you catch his drift, pretty easy. Christian life is an incline. It's like riding a bicycle uphill. If you decide, I'm just going to coast, you only coast one way. That doesn't mean you are saved by works or your position is maintained by works. The point is you are make, either making progress or you are going backwards. You're either furthering your walk with the Lord furthering your relationship with the Lord, or take heed, lest you fall. Heavenly Father, the warnings in the Scripture are so mingled with your love. In fact, the reason you give the warnings is because you love your children. We know that Jesus was the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And he also said he protected it from wolves. How grateful we are that we have a shepherd that loves us enough to warn us through the word of God in some very stringent ways. Lord, I pray that as a body of Christ, there would be an incredible amount of love and acceptance that flows between us. But also, Father, with that, give us... A good dose of discernment. To know those who are yours. For Jesus told us that we should not cast our pearls before the swine, nor throw that which is holy to the dogs. And I pray, Lord, that we would love you and love your body enough to warn and to demonstrate discernment. Help us, Lord, to never broaden the path that you have made narrow to never usurp the word of God that you have spoken, or to do things for the wrong motivation, like Balaam did. Lord, I pray that our lives would become purer and holier as they reflect you, as we are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, in that regard, thanks for your patience. Thanks for your grace, thanks for your mercy that's extended every time we fall and call upon your name. And Father, I would pray finally tonight for those who are among us who have always seen the path to God like Cain did, very broad, able to get to God by just doing your own thing and presenting that before you, neglecting to see that the only way to heaven through the shed blood of a Savior. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the night that their lives are turned over, lock, stock, and barrel to You, and they come on the basis of the shed blood of Your Son and find forgiveness and mercy. Save them, Lord, and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen.